0: Well, once again, welcome and good morning. Uh, welcome, to Lake Forest Davidson. Hey, Ben. Uh, my name's Gray. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And whether you are here in person at the YMCA or you are tuning in online, I'm glad you're here with us today. Uh, Holly alluded to this, but as many of you know, this year we're going through the entire Bible in a year long series we're calling The Story Story with a capital S. And hopefully you found the reading plan and the other resources online, but if you haven't, never too late to jump back in this is actually the end of volume two today so we'll be starting kind of a new block next week so it's actually a great time to jump in if you're not already or if you've fallen off the wagon it's a great time to get back on so uh, last week you may remember that katie taught us about the importance of remembering from the book of exodus we heard about God's, how God's chosen people, the Israelites, that were freed from slavery in Egypt miraculously, and how the Passover helped them remember God's faithfulness and trustworthiness. And so today, today we'll be looking through the book of Leviticus, the third book in the Bible. And, and to understand Leviticus, you really need to understand the uh, the situation that the Israelites are in at the beginning of that book. So for the next four minutes or so, sit back, relax, and allow me to take you on a multimedia journey through the back half of the book of Exodus. So the story left off with the Israelites free, having just escaped Egypt, and they're in the desert, they're wandering in the wilderness when they are led to the foot of Mount Sinai. It's an actual picture of Mount Sinai. So Moses, the Israelites leader, goes up Mount Sinai uh, and and he meets God there. And with God, they, they do a number of things. The first one, though, is God and Moses make a covenant. God says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Also on the mountain, we see God give Moses uh, with instructions about how to build the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. You see another picture here. This is a a rendering of the tabernacle, is that big tent in the middle and the Ark of the Covenant is inside. And we see in the design of this, this structure, which was supposed to be built in the camp, we see a lot of things that are reminiscent of the last time that God dwelled with his people in the Garden of Eden. Both had an entrance that faced east Cherubim guarded the gate to Eden, and there were cherubim on the ark and on the curtains of the tabernacle. The tree of life from the garden of Eden is represented by the menorah inside of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was to be set in the center of camp, just like the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were set in the center of the garden of Eden. And again, it's all a call back to the garden of Eden, because once again, God wants to dwell among his people. And we see this in Exodus 29, moving some chapters ahead. God says, Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. While while still on the mountain, Moses gets instructions to place his brother Aaron and Aaron's sons as the priests for Israel. God gives instructions for how to consecrate them, how to ordain them. And again, Moses' brother Aaron and, and his sons are chosen to be the priests. We see Exodus 29 again. Then tie sashes on Aaron and his sons. The priesthood is theirs by a lasting ordinance. And so all this instruction was given to Moses while he's up on Mount Sinai. He was up there for a long time. Meanwhile, back at camp, the rest of the crew's down there, and we read about this in Exodus 32, the people say, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So again, Moses is up on Mount Sinai, hashing out the details with God, and back at camp, they're ready to turn the page on Moses and to turn the page on God. But thankfully, God had just literally just appointed Aaron as the priest. So Aaron back at camp, you know, I'm sure he was able to put the brakes on the whole golden calf plan. I think I have a picture of him rebuking the Israelites for that idea. Oh, no. Turns out Aaron had the same idea. Aaron answered them, take off your gold earrings that your wives, sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So everyone took off their gold earrings and all their gold, brought them to Aaron. He put them in and cast an idol in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool, and then they all said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So God is justifiably angry about uh, what has transpired here, but Moses pleads on the people's behalf and ultimately things get back on track. Again, I skip a lot of details here, uh, but Aaron's still going to be the priest. Things are going to move forward, but the big picture, it is, the big picture is this. We have a group. That is, fresh out of Egypt, where Pharaoh and Israel, in the Egypt were Israel's big problems. Fresh out of Egypt, Pharaoh and Egypt were Israel's big problems. Now Israel has become Israel's big problem. They can no longer point to the problem out there. They have to point to the problem in here. So the book of Exodus ends with God, despite everything, despite all the missteps, coming into this tabernacle that was constructed in the Israelites camp to dwell among his people again. and We read about this again in the last chapter of Exodus, Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So Exodus ends and we pick up again with the third book, the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus gets a bad rap. There, but there's there's a ton of amazing stuff in this book. It is a little bit difficult, though, a little bit a little obscure. Uh, back in January, I compared reading the Bible to eating. It's more like eating a fine steak than eating mashed potatoes because it requires a little extra chewing. Well, Leviticus is kind of like the steak you put on at the beginning of the fourth quarter so it will be ready right at the end of the game. And then the game goes into triple overtime, and you go out and look at your steak, and it's, it's very well done. So this, this one requires some real chewing. It's tough, but unlike a burnt, a burnt steak, that's where the metaphor breaks down, there is a lot of good to be had from this book. So as you read Leviticus, reading plans should take you there next week, a lot of questions will naturally come up. Leviticus is where reading plans often come to die. Um, so we're hoping this won't happen for you. And today I'm going to look at three questions that may emerge as you read Leviticus, or three questions that may help you as you begin to read Leviticus. First one, there are a lot of laws in there. First question, what are the laws all about? What's the big picture with these laws? so leviticus again it's known for having a bunch of commands a bunch of laws and some of these seem admirable seem to make sense seem like laws that are on our books here in america but some of them seem very random seem very confusing or maybe even troubling for example i'll run you through a few real quick leviticus 19:11, do not steal do not lie do not deceive one another makes pretty good sense. Leviticus 23:22. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. Hmm, very nice. Leviticus 23:19. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Another one doesn't make a ton of sense. Leviticus 19 or Leviticus 11:19. There are instructions about not eating certain birds like don't eat bats. How are we to understand these laws? Uh, Again, you have to step into the time, the place, and the situation that the Israelites are in. There are three big issues that they're dealing with uh, here at the foot of Mount Sinai. One, they now have God dwelling with them. They have this new tabernacle, a God dwelling living among them. And so there's this big question, how do we properly interact with this God dwelling among us? How do we deal with that? Again, you have a group that has gone from living under the oppressive human rule of slavery under Pharaoh to living under the benevolent divine rule of God in freedom. They're going from living in resistance and opposition to authority to living under it. And this, again, requires some changes in how they interact with authority, and that's exactly what a lot of these, these laws and commands give guidance to. So you see, a lot of these laws in chapters one through fifteen, with some exclusions or some exceptions, but a lot of them are in chapters one through fifteen, uh, giving instructions about how to properly interact with his God dwelling among them. And again, many of them come in the form of instructions about how to make how to properly make an offering, a, a thanksgiving offering, or a, a sin offering, a fellowship offering, things like that. Uh, and you can think, think of these kind of like an, an, a manual in the glove compartment of your car. You have this new thing, and it, and it helps you know how to properly interact and care for and, in, uh, in, yeah, interact with, with this new thing. Many of the sacrifices, one, one of the things you'll notice as you read through, is m- many of them involve the shedding and the sprinkling of blood. And you may wonder, like, what's, what's the deal with blood? Uh, innocent blood spilled on the sacrif- sacrificial altar represents the loss of life. Life is lost and death is brought about when evil is committed, when, when wrong is done. And again, sometimes this evil leads to the literal loss of life, but sometimes evil leads to a loss of essence of life or for, for death to, to come into something that is still living. And the shedding of blood gives the proper acknowledgement of the weight of that disobedience, of the weight of that evil. In the New Testament, Hebrews 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. In Leviticus, we also read a good bit about uh, things being clean and unclean, and that's kind of a a foreign concept to us today. It's a bit confusing at first, and there's no shortage of of misunderstanding about clean and unclean. So if you're unclean, it doesn't mean you're necessarily sinful, but it's, it's because of something you did made you no longer ritually pure, and you needed to undergo one of these rituals to restore your cleanliness before you entered God's presence. Among things that can make you unclean are things like touching a dead animal or a person, touching mold or other things like that that were, that were symbolically associated with the loss of life, with death. Eating unclean animals would, al- would also make one unclean. And like many of these unclean animals are carnivores or scavengers, those who, uh, who survive off the loss of life uh, or survive off of death, animals associated with death. Some of it was just good practical guidance um, in terms of clean and unclean animals. Uh, God forbid eating animals like rats and bats, again, as are known disease carriers. Uh, and, and the last clarification is that, that being unclean is a temporary state. It would last a week or two or something like that. And, and being unclean is not an indictment on one's character. Again, someone had to carry the dead bodies. Uh, it was a, but it was just a reality that someone had been in contact with death. And before encountering God, whose essence is life, they needed to be made clean. It only becomes wrong when someone who who is impure, who is unclean because of something they've touched or come in contact with, enters into God's presence bearing these symbols and aroma of death. Also in this section, we see guidelines for the priesthood. So again, we have this tabernacle, of God dwelling among us, and, and the priests are, are a way that we can interact with, or a way that they can interact with the with tabernacle. We see instructions for how the priests will be arranged and how they will operate. The priests, big picture, the priests are representatives. And they represent two things. They represent God's holiness to the people. So they're a representative of God to the community, but they also represent the people to God. They represent the people's holiness to God. So, for example, in Leviticus 4, we see how a a priest sins, and his sin brings sin among the whole people, because, again, he's a representative of the entire people. At the end of Leviticus 4, we, we see that the priests make an atonement on behalf of the entire people to God. So, again, he's representing the people to God. Priests are an intermediary, and they go to God on behalf of the people and on behalf of people's sins. And so again, we saw, as, as we mentioned earlier, Aaron, Moses' brother, is the high priest, and his sons were set to serve as priests alongside him um, as an intermediary between God and God's people. And we see their ordination uh, happen in chapters 8 and 9. Then we get to Leviticus 10, and that's a very tough chapter. Uh, it's, it's pretty much like the first day uh, on the job for Aaron as high priest, and things get off to a, a difficult start. His sons Nahab and Abihu uh, basically made uh, what, what they called an unauthorized fire before the Lord, uh, contrary to God's commands. So they went in and, and made some sort of offering before the Lord that was the wrong thing to do. It's kind of vague about what exactly was wrong about it. There are some theories, but, but what we do know is that his sons went rogue on day one and they were consumed by the fire of God and died. They acted contrary to God's command, and kind of like the sun burns up an object that gets too close, the flames of the presence of the Lord consumed them. And their disobedience turned a flame that had been made to be a blessing to the people into a fire of judgment. And I was, as I was reading this, it just felt very severe. Uh, and in ways, I think it is. But here's the lens we kind of have to, understand, we have to view this whole thing through. Remember how I mentioned God is dwelling with humanity again first time since Eden. Uh, Do you remember what went wrong in the garden? God gave simple commands, and it was disobedience that broke that relationship. It was going contrary to those commands that sent humanity on this downward spiral. And here we have two priests beginning to go down that same path. Two priests who have been set apart as a representative of God to the people and as a representative of the people to God, take matters into their own hands on the first day and disobey. So again, the first major issue, we have this tabernacle, how do we interact with it? Second major issue the Israelites were facing was we have, we're in this new place. We're not in Egypt anymore. We're not, we're not under another government. And also we have these new people with us. How do we live together? So the Israelites need a direction on how to properly be God's people. Uh, a a oft missed verse in exodus 12 as the israelites are fleeing egypt uh, it says many others went with them as they fled this is during you know the whole red sea thing many others went with them as they fled it doesn't even say who they are could be other slaves could be some egyptians we don't know but these people from outside their community fled with them and here at the foot of mount sinai they're faced with a question of how do we assimilate these people into our community how do these people become god's people with us how can this group live together and be holy how can this group live together and be set apart? Letting go of the Egyptian culture that had, that had crept in, while also still resisting the urge to be influenced and conformed by the, the cultures and religions around them at Sinai. And you think back all the way to, the, to Genesis and the promise that God made Abraham, that his descendants would be a blessing to the nations. This law about how to, how to live together sets them up to do just that. These laws about living together set them up to do just that, to interact with one another in a way that's different than the world around them, in a way that is a blessing to the world around them. So with that in mind, let's go back and look at those laws we we looked at earlier. Uh, Leviticus 19.11, do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another. This one's somewhat self-explanatory. Uh, for a society to function, you need, you need basic social trust. You need uh, justice to be done when evil is done. You need a moral fabric from which to draw uh, the, the community's functioning. Again, that one's pretty self-explanatory. Let's look at Leviticus 23, 22. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord, your God. So this law commands that God's people, to, for them to be holy, they need to show mercy, that those who have need to share with those who are in need, that those who are struggling should not be forgotten or ignored. They should be seen. And the command ends with, I am the Lord, your God. So these laws not only tell Israel what to do, but they also show us the character and the heart of God, what God is about, what holiness is about. God tells them, be holy as I am holy. He's commanding them to be like he is, to, to care about the things he cares about, to care about justice, to extend mercy, to remember and make accommodation for those who are forgotten or hurting or far from home. This law and, and others like it are glimpses into God's heart and what God cares about. In Leviticus twenty three nineteen, do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. All right, how about this one? Uh, There are a handful of laws, more than a handful, uh, like this that seem pretty random. Things like, you know, don't mix two different types of fabrics, uh, don't sow your field with two kinds of seeds, don't breed two different kinds of cattle, a lot of things about mixing. Uh, what What is this all about? So as I mentioned earlier, Israel constantly was being influenced by the culture around them. Uh, including the Canaanites. The Canaanites were a culture uh, nearby where they were currently. And their religious beliefs often centered around fertility. And the Canaanites believed that you could, through this act of mixing things together, like crossing things that don't normally cross, you could kind of supernaturally marry these items and they would produce offspring, figuratively, that would bring luck and prosperity in the future. So again, mixing these things was a way to, to bring new life and new luck and prosperity out of them. It was, it was a, a ritual uh, practice that they do. And, and God is saying, everyone around you is doing this. Don't do it. Be holy. Don't be like everyone around you. I heard a, but out of context, these seem like they make no sense. I, I heard a great analogy uh, to this. If someone was to make a, a code of laws today for um, Christian uprightness or something like that. Uh, one of them could be don't subscribe to Sports Illustrated uh, because once a year uh, you'll get the swimsuit edition and the swimsuit edition will show up in your mailbox and it will take you down a path of, of lustful, uh, harmful, um, destructive thoughts. And, and in our context, that would kind of make some sense. Just stay away from it. You know, don't, don't tangle with it. Don't say you're going to throw that one away. Just don't even mess with it go 2,000, 3,000 years from now, someone would look back and be like, what's the big deal with Sports Illustrated? It's a sports magazine. But the point of it is the same. There are are these cultural uh, seductions around the community, just like the swimsuit edition would be for us, um, that God is saying, don't mess with it, don't tangle with it, be holy, be set apart, don't indulge in these things the way uh, that everyone around you indulges in them third big issue for the Israelites. Um, They've gotten these commands about how to interact with God. They've gotten commands about how to interact with others. Human nature, the third big issue is they're going to mess up. They're not going to get it right every time. So what do we do when we fall short of these commands? How do we make things right and move forward? And we see this in chapter 16. It's it's kind of the the whole book is built around chapter 16 uh, because it's about the Day of Atonement. Uh, and we'll get there here in just a moment. But the, the Israelites, they spend this full year at the foot of Mount Sinai being shaped into God's people. And these laws, again, are there to help shape them into the type of community and the type of people uh, that God wants them to be. So moving on to our second big question you may encounter reading through the book of Leviticus. I told you the first one was long. Second one, where does Jesus fit in to this whole book? So now we're going to look at the Day of Atonement, chapter 16 that I just talked about. So in in the middle of Leviticus, again, chapter 16, right in the middle, we read about the Day of Atonement. And and Jack read us uh, a portion from that chapter this morning. The Day of Atonement, it was the one day of the year that the high priest, again, Aaron at this time, uh, could enter into the Holy of Holies, which is like the back room of the tabernacle, the most sacred place um, in the entire tent. Uh, I think we have a picture there. You see, so that's the Ark of the Covenant there, that box in the back with the smoke coming from it. And the, the room that that curtain closes off, that is the Holy of Holies back there. That's where the, the presence of God dwells. And so a lot of the, the offerings and rituals would happen in that room with the menorah in it out front, except for this one day a year, the Day of Atonement that we read about in chapter 16, where the high priest would go into this back room. Um, But first, before he did, the high priest would sacrifice a bull to atone for his own sins. Again, so he is clean before he does this. And then the rest of the day would center around these two goats that Jack read about for us. So two goats. One of these goats would be offered as a sacrifice by the high priest uh, for the people. And the blood of this goat would be sprinkled in on the Holy of Holies, you know, on top of the Ark of the Covenant there. It would be sprinkled in there. And the priest would bring this blood in on behalf of the people symbolically bringing the people back into the presence of God after what they'd done the, the previous year had, had distanced them from God. So the priest would bring them back into the presence of God through this first goat. And then on the second goat, the sins of the people would be ceremonially placed on the head of this other goat, and the goat would be sent out into the wilderness to carry the people's sins away. So again, two big things happened here. One, the people are brought back into the presence of the God, and back into the presence of God on the Day of Atonement. And then two, the people's sins were dealt with and carried away and taken out of the community. And on this day, all of Israel would be forgiven for all their sins of the year, the sins they, they knew they were doing and the sins they didn't even know that they were doing or weren't doing. And this day of atonement, it deals with that third issue we were talking about earlier. What do we do? when we break the commands? Or what did the Israelites do when they, they inevitably fell short, when they, sh- when they sinned, when they disobeyed? And this day in, is known in Judaism as Yom Kippur. And as Christians, we don't celebrate or practice Yom Kippur because we believe that, the, that what the Day of Atonement does in a year, Jesus, Jesus did for all time. What's interesting about it though, is as we, look at, as we look closely at the Day of Atonement, we see signposts pointing to what Jesus has done and what Jesus would do written all over it. We'll talk about a couple here. Uh, Jesus was both our high priest as well as our intermediary. He was our high priest, you know, our intermediary representing God, but he was also the sacrifice. He was both the high priest and the sacrifice. Much like the first goat, he was killed, and his blood was spilled on our behalf, bringing us back into God's presence like the first goat. And yet also, like the second goat, this, our sins were placed upon him on the cross. As like the second goat, he was cast out from God, bearing the weight of the sins of the world. Chapters 9 and 10 of the book of Hebrews, to spell it out even better than I can, I'll read you three verses from there. Hebrews 9, 11. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of creation. He did not enter by the means of blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death so that we, we, so that we may serve the living God. So I said Jesus was the high priest. He was the sacrifice. He was also the tabernacle, the place where, where God dwelled. Unlike the Israelites in, in Leviticus, uh, we, didn't, we didn't have to prepare ourselves to enter into, into Jesus' presence. He came to live with us. Jesus sacri- he sacrificed not with the blood of others, blood, with the blood of animals, but with his own blood, with God's own blood. And while the blood, of the, while the blood of the goat blotted away sins for the year, the blood of God himself covered the sins of the entire world forever. At his death, You may remember in the tabernacle, there was was that veil separating the Holy of Holies from the the rest of the the tent and the rest of the camp. Uh, The veil in the tabernacle separated. It it split down the middle at Jesus' death. This veil that had separated God's holiness from the unholiness of the people split because through Jesus' sacrifice, all were made holy. All were made to be with God. There was no more separation between God and people. Hebrews ten: we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So again, while we don't look to the day of atonement for our salvation, how much richer is our understanding of what Jesus did when we know how the day of atonement worked and what it was about? On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. And how we relate to God and how he relates to us was forever changed on that day. So our third and, and final question is, well, what do we do with all of this today? Uh, what do we do with the book of Leviticus today, specifically? Uh, as I just said, when it comes to our ability to be in the presence of God and to be with God, Jesus forever blew that door wide open. We're no longer bound by these commands uh, for... Unclean and clean, and rituals and things like Uh, that—all these old covenant commands that we read about—we're no longer bound by them. Hebrews nine fifteen tells us that. It says, "For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that He has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant." So again, the question: What do we? What do we do with Leviticus? What do we do with the third book of the Bible? Do we? Throw it out. Do we make it JV? No, of course not. While we, while, we live under the, while we don't live under these commands anymore, it is still God's word to us. And in the new covenant, some, some of these commands are, are renewed. Most of them moral laws, like, like many of the ones Jesus identifies, like in Matthew, and he, he mentions uh, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, uh, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, but we know, and, and while we no longer have to present ourselves as clean to be in God's presence, the call to be holy still remains. Christians not only believe that we can be in God's presence, we actually believe that God in the Holy Spirit dwells within every Christian. As God dwelled in the tabernacle, God now dwells within every Christian. That's what Paul means in 1 Corinthians when he says your body is a temple, it's a dwelling place of God. God dwells within every Christian, and and as God sought for Israel to be holy, to be set apart, to be different, to be a blessing to the world, so is the call to Christians to be holy, to be set apart, to be different, to be a blessing to the world. You see why we call it the story? Everything kind of connects. So yes, holiness still matters, not as an effort to save our own hide, our hide is saved, but so that others might see the Lord, the holiness of God in and through us. We are to be set apart in the same way that Israel's neighbors would look at the tent and the priest and would see something that was different, see something that made them, made them ask questions, something set apart. Today, people should look at Christians and see something different than everything around them, to so see something holy, something set apart. Hebrews twelve fourteen, uh, it says, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So our sin uh, obscures the window to to the holiness of God in us. And I think this works both ways. You know, our disobedience uh, makes it hard for others to see God in Christ, Holy Spirit in us. But it also makes it difficult for us to see the Lord in our own lives. Now, a place I think we we can see this is in the parable of the prodigal son. We read about it in Luke 15, and for those who may not remember the story, you have this younger son who goes to his father and basically says, hey, I know you're not dead yet, but I want your inheritance because I'm trying to go have a good time. The father says, surprisingly said yes, and the son goes to another land, lives pretty fast and loose uh, until the money runs out, and then is without a place to to stay, without food to eat, and he ends up basically staying with a bunch of pigs and farm animals and uh, hitting rock bottom, you could say. And, and I've, I've often thought about, you know, as, as he was sitting there, or you know how the story ends, he, he ends up going home, and the father runs to him and embraces him. And I've often thought about uh, when he was sitting there in the mud, uh, the reality that his father didn't love him an ounce less than when he was at home. This was proven when he went back home. His father ran to him. So the, the love of the father had not changed as he was laying there in the mud. his disobedience led for him to have an inability to experience that daily love, to trust that love. I bet when he was eating alongside those pigs, he didn't feel that love. I bet he began to doubt that love. And so again, our, our obedience or disobedience, it doesn't change how much God loves us. That was proven on the cross. But it does affect our ability to live in the daily trust and love of the Father. And I know this has been true in my life. A lot of the times that, that I've struggled with my faith and felt like I wasn't uh, connecting with God have been times where uh, I was being disobedient, where I was doing something I knew I shouldn't be doing, or I wasn't doing something that I knew I needed to do. Uh, so so the, the big question from there is, okay, how do, how do we do it? How do we take a step towards uh, obedience and holiness um, in a way that, that is, again, isn't about saving our own skin, uh, but is about pursuing uh, kind of communion with the Father. Uh, there's a, a great book called Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges. And he, he, does, he makes this analogy uh, between pursuing obedience and holiness with farming. He says, farming is a joint venture between a farmer and God. The farmer cannot do what God must do. The farmer can't make the sun shine. The farmer can't make the seed sprout. The farmer can't make it rain. But God also won't do what the farmer needs to do. God's not going to plow the field for the farmer. And we can say that, that just as accurately, we can say the same thing about pursuing holiness and obedience. is a joint venture between God and the Christian. And this is the, the Bridges quote. No one can attain any degree of holiness without God working in their life. So make no mistake. It comes through the work of God. But just as surely, no one will attain it without any effort on their own part. So may, maybe your next step, just like the prodigal, is looking around at the mud. Um, you, you trust in the love of the Father, but man, you're, you're not feeling it. And you're doubting And Maybe it's time to, to do the work and take the steps to go back home. To move back in that direction. But lastly, and I'll I'll give this caveat, being holy, being set apart, it doesn't mean being perfect and never doing anything wrong. Uh, To be set apart in our world, uh, especially today, it may be more in how you handle the mistakes you make, how you handle the times where you're disobedient. Do you immediately start to blame other people? Do you get defensive? Do you start making excuses? Or do you own it and say, hey, that... That was just really selfish. Uh, I don't have an excuse for it. Um, And ask for forgiveness. In those moments, do we look up to God uh, and thank him that he would love someone even like me, someone even as as weak as me, Um, someone as weak-willed and disobedient as me? Do we look up and thank God for that? Because that's the gospel. That's what it is. Uh, that That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the good news uh, that we see in Leviticus is that uh, this holy God, who who at times seems so severe and at times so uncompromising in his holiness, that same God will come running to you and will come running to me. So please please pray. Lord, we, we thank you for the freedom uh, that comes and in, in, in your sacrifice on the cross. Because that is, that is true freedom. And, but Lord, as we strive to live in that freedom, we, we often are tempted by a faraway land. We're often drawn towards a life that at first seemed like what we wanted, but has left us feeling in the mud. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that your love would speak to us there in the low, in the, in the low moments, in the low places. And that in, our, in the deep recesses of our hearts, in the basement closets of our minds, that, that your gospel would, would reach even there and that you would dwell in those places, Lord, the parts of us uh, where we hide from you, where we doubt you, Lord, that, that the gospel would, would come in. And so, Lord, we thank you again for the freedom, and we, we pray for, for holiness. Um, again, not to save our own hides, uh, but to live a life that is a, first and foremost, a part of your story. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.